Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Good, Sherry. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. Well, we are super excited to have our next guest on our podcast, and this is Mr. Mike Vining, Sergeant Major from the U.S. Army, retired, who is currently the historian for the Vietnam Veteran Chapter of the National EOD Association, in addition to the assistant historian for the National EOD Association, and also contributing historian to the EOD Warrior Foundation. Mike resides in Colorado with his wife, Donna Eikenberry. Welcome, Mike. Well, thanks. Thanks, Sherry. Thanks, Mike, for having me on your podcast. I'm honored to uh, you asked me. Thanks, Mike. We really appreciate uh, you being on today. We can't wait to uh, hear about your stories and all the work that you've done and uh, everything you've contributed to EOD. And you also have a, a very interesting life, and we're looking forward to uh you sharing that with our listeners. So, Sherry, take it away. Will do. Mike, again, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast with us today. And you are a man of many talents. And we would like to start by asking where you grew up. Well, I grew up in uh, in lower peninsula of Michigan, the western side, a place called Howard City. And uh, Basically, Montcalm County, and that's where our family has lived ever since. Uh, I still have a lot of family there. Went to high school there at Tri-County High School. Uh, and uh, But uh, when I had graduated from high school in 68, two weeks later, um, I joined the Army. It had been my plan all along to join the Army as soon as I graduated. Okay. So you did... You- you joined the army in July of 68 and then in May of 69 you became an EOD technician what what led you to explosive ordnance disposal well I, I had two passions one one passion i had was climbing i envied the you know the 10th mountain division the climbers during world war 2 the ski troops and I, I would have liked to have done that, but at that time, we did not have any a mountain division or anything like that. And then my other interest was science, chemistry. Um, I would uh, I would make explosives and, uh, and detonate homemade <laughs> explosives. Uh, I saw a movie of World War II about a bomb disposal team. Uh, in Britain, disposing of a bomb, and I thought, "Wow, that's just amazing to be to go down there and to do that to what you know what it would take to actually disarm a bomb like that." So uh, I talked to the recruiter and about going into EOD, but at that time, you couldn't go, you couldn't enlist for EOD. You had to have a MOS. You had to have another primary before you could volunteer for EOD school. So when I went into basic training um, uh, with the recruiter, we decided that the best path to EOD was to go to an ammunition renovation school, ammunition maintenance school. And that was called, that was a 55 Charlie. And he thought that that would be the greatest 
jump off point, then I could volunteer for EOD school. I would have a, you know, a little bit of start on ordinance and everything. So I did that. Went after basic training. Went to you, ammunition renovation school, at Redstone Arsenal. And then part of our training was to destroy unserviceable ammunition. So we had to go out to the UD range, and the UD folks there uh, told us how to and showed us how to dispose of am- unserviceable ammunition. Then asked for the volunteers, and that's where I volunteered. Went through my interview and got a school date. So that's how I got started. Mike, as uh, someone who studies and records uh, history, specifically EOD history, what was uh, your training like when you went through school? Uh, does, did you, were you aware of the history of EOD when you were going through your EOD training? And um, if so or not, uh, looking back on it, what, what did you think of your EOD training when you went through in 69? Well, to answer that question, Mike, I really did not know any history, EOD history. Uh, I um, didn't really know what I was actually getting into when I volunteered for EOD school, um, but it sounded like an adventure and uh, challenging. So uh, the first phase one at that time, and, and that was 1969, was you went to two weeks of chemical school, learning about chemical, biological agents, and that was at Fort McCullen, Alabama. So that was the first part, and uh, oh, we did a bunch of different training on, on chemical stuff. One of the things that we did was they, that was kind of interesting, is that they had the, this M5 ointment for mustard agent. So what they did is they took one of your arms and in the inside of your arm, put the M5 agent on it. The other arm was bare. And then they put a diluted solution of mustard agent on the M5 ointment and, a, and another drop of it on your bare arm, on your other arm. And uh, then what you did with the one with the M5 ointment on it, you did a pinch block method to remove it. And then they, and so that that completely neutralized the mustard agent on that arm. But then on your other arm, you got a little blister to show that you really got some of that agent. So they actually put mustard agent on you at that time. Uh, We also had to inject ourselves with uh, the auto injector, but they had uh, a saline solution in there instead of uh, anthropine. So, uh, yeah, it was quite interesting. And uh, people washed out wearing the, the uh, it was the M3 butyl rubber suit. We called it the brutal rubber suit with the M9 mask, which was hard to breathe through. So that was phase one. Phase two, then we went to Indian Head, Maryland, the Naval Ordnance Station there. And uh, I think that phase two was about 12 weeks long. And uh, we, you know, learned about physics, about explosives. Then we started learning about the different munitions, grenades, rockets, aircraft, uh, rockets and ordnance. And um, that was so. So I graduated on May 12th, uh, 1969. Now, I didn't go to the nuke phase because I 
was only let's see what I was only E four E three at the time, so you had to be I think an E four. So after finishing Indian Head, I went to tech escort at Edgewood Arsenal for uh, my duty assignment. So and and was in tech escort prior to going to Vietnam. So going back to uh, phase one, you, you're talking about putting mustard agent under your arm. Uh, did you volunteer for that, or uh, were you voluntold to do that? At that time, everybody did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't really a good idea because, <laughs> because when you, know, you're expo- you have initial exposure to mustard, this is what I've been told that you your next exposure would be worse because you've had a first exposure. But uh, they actually you put live chemical agent on you. Mm. Wow! So and was- so that was one of the things. If you didn't want to do that, then you could just say, "I'm done." And we had people drop out of phase one. Yeah. Phase two, I tell you that that's UD school to me is one of the hardest schools in in the military in that it's not physically hard, but it is mentally hard. I mean, it is, there is so much to learn. Uh, and so, you know, you can't compare it to going through Navy Bud School or going through Special Forces Q course or Delta Selection and Assessment. It wasn't physical, but it is really a mental school. It's and we ha- you have a high dropout rate. Yeah, and uh, through your experiences, not only going through um, EOD school, graduating, you went to Vietnam, and you served in EOD throughout your military career, and uh, also now as a historian and looking back and studying EOD history and events, uh, is there anything that stands out to you as far as uh, what was learned? Uh, throughout the history of EOD that you see impacting EOD operations today? Hmm. Well, you know, of course, we continue to evolve. Um, you know, initially, you know, when I went through EOD school and when I went to even after, during Vietnam and, and after Vietnam, we were we were always training for the big war, you know, the, the Russians coming across the folder gap and, and the big war in Europe. And so EOD in the army was organized under the concept that, that we would operate out of a base and we would have an area and, and totally different than what we were doing in Vietnam. It was surprising to me though, we had Vietnam going on, but we weren't really trained for the way we actually functioned in Vietnam. In Vietnam, most of the time, we function as a two-person team. Uh, we would uh, we get picked up uh, by helicopter at the base. We would go out with a unit, and that unit supported us until we completed the operations, and then we returned to the base. So we we... And what we we didn't have a truck in most cases except for on base, uh, so what you you had to just carry everything. And basically in Vietnam, um, I either carried one or two haversacks 
20 to 40 pounds of C4, uh, firing uh, the firing systems to make up in those haversacks, uh, 270 rounds of ammunition. We had food and water to self-support for three days. After three days, the unit has to provide us with all the other things. If we needed more explosives, the unit provided us with more explosives. Never did we have carry with us other than a pair of crimpers, pliers, uh, a knife, any tools, EOD tools. Most uh, So it was totally different in how we were trained. Um, so we have to, in each war, and initially in World War II, Army EOD units operated as a company. We thought that that was the best way to, to operate. Well, there was so many, you needed EOD so many places. So eventually uh, we were broken down into squads, like 10 man squads. And uh, then we were assigned, it's called uh, whatever, they're like the 123rd Ordnance uh, Bomb Disposal Squad separate. And so it was better to operate in squads versus operating in companies. We learned that. So you know, each war, I think, is unique, we, and we have to adjust to each war. Um, I got out in 1999 before 9-11, and so you know, I didn't have any experience in what uh, our EOD folks of today has experienced in Afghanistan and Iraq and how they they operated, but you, you just uh, have to continue to readjust how you're composed and how you you, know, you adjust to a new way of fighting. Uh, Mike, one of the uh, things that our audience may not know, I just want to recognize it here, is that during your very long distinguished career, you spent a lot of time being assigned to Army Delta. And uh, from 1968 to Vietnam until almost the turn of the century, uh, you were a part of many conflicts, and you were, you were involved, you deployed, and uh, rendered service during these many conflicts. Is there, is there a conflict uh, experience that you would like to share with the audience that kind of stands out that you want to talk about? Yeah, um, well... In 1978, yeah, after Vietnam, uh, I was at Fort Leonard Wood uh, from 73 to 78, which I liked Fort Leonard Wood, a basic training camp. But post-Vietnam, EOD uh, was got to be a little bit boring for me. Uh, I was looking for something different, and I decided I would want to go into special forces so I got a school date to go into special forces as a medic, and um, but and by chance I got a, my sergeant major at the control detachment gave me a call, and he knew that I was leaving and going into special forces, and he said that there's a new unit forming up at Fort Bragg, and they're looking for six EOD people in this new unit, and so he thought I would be what they're looking for. So I called that number, came for an interview, and I spent 20 years in Delta. Um, and uh, it was just, it was a pleasure to be in such a unit. Um, you asked me about the one conflict or mission that we had that stands out. And of course, that the big one was our first mission was the uh, the 
rescue of 53 American hostages being held in Tehran, Iran. Um, they, they took hostages in 4 November of 1979. And so we tried to negotiate the release of the hostages. Initially, there were 66. Several people were left, uh, let go. And when Jimmy Carter gave the authorization for us to go and rescue the hostages, there was 53 hostages. So this is what we've been training for in Delta for two years to do this kind of mission. But the, all the assets that we needed to get there, we had to put together uh, you know, the aircraft that would fly us in and all the support we needed. You know, uh, So we did various different rehearsals and uh, we never did a full rehearsal for op operational security reasons. So we uh, went in there, and so I flew in this to Desert One. I was on the first MC-130 that landed there at Desert One. As soon as we landed, we saw headlights coming down the road. It was a bus. We were told to stop that bus. So we stopped the bus, uh, boarded the bus, and there was 44 Iranians on the bus. So we took them and as detainees and uh, so now we had 44 iranians but uh so we had six air fixed wing aircraft land at desert one three mcs and three ec 130s those were the refill birds there were our bladder birds that had about five thousand gallons of uh, aviation fuel on board to fill the helicopters and we sat there and we waited for the helicopters to land. They were really late. As everybody knows or don't know, there was this big, huge sandstorm, a habu, the helicopter. We flew over the top of the habu. The helicopters were flying through the habu, and they threw, went through the first one. wasn't as big, but the second one was a huge one. So we had eight helicopters that were launched off the aircraft carrier Nimitz, one turned back, uh, one landed, uh, some, some component was overheating, so they landed and abandoned that helicopter in Iran. So when they landed at Desert One, finally, oh, I forgot about the fuel truck, too. There was, a, behind the bus was a fuel truck, and they shot an um, M72 law at the fuel truck, so the fuel truck blew up, so we had that burning there. But the helicopters eventually landed, and uh, they were late, and so we were all ready to get go to our next site, and that would be our hide site, and they would park at Desert 2. And that's when things started to go bad. We needed six helicopters to do the mission. So the six, so one of the helicopters developed a hydraulic, serious hydraulic problem. So it was grounded. Now we only have five helicopters to do the mission. That's and these are RH-53D model helicopters. Uh, they're Navy helicopters being flown by Marines, mostly Marines. There was an Air Force guy, and there was, I think, a couple Navy guys that were flying them, but mostly Marines. So we five helicopters was not enough to get all of us out, get the rescue forces out, uh, 
and get all the hostages out. Beckwith did not want to count, cut the number of rescue forces because this embassy is was huge. I forget how many acres it was, uh, but it's a big, huge compound to search and to find all the different hostages. And um, so the mission was aborted. Right there was determined that we would uh, we would take the Iranians that we detained, we'd take them back with us and later on release them. And maybe we would hope that maybe in a few days we could relaunch the mission all over again. So that was the hope. And uh, so we got into the EC. Uh, my I was with B Squadron. Got in the EC-130 and um, I was laying on the fuel bladder. I was near the front, and uh, and we had two helicopters behind us. They had been refueled, ready, and they were going to fly back to the Nimitz. So. Um, we were just, it was done for the day. It was a hard day, and uh, what we were done, we're just it, back in the, the the aircraft. It was dark. And so our props were going, and uh, we were ready to just taxi out and, and leave. And then all of a sudden, uh, something happened. We you could see the rotor blades of the helicopter cut into the top of the fuselage. Didn't know what that was. There was like a large explosion near near us. We rocked. The next thing we knew was the left front cockpit door came in. Fire came in. Um, and we didn't know what, what hit us. And what had happened is the helicopter was to our left rear. When it landed, it landed hard and had flattened its tires. So when the CCT were directing that helicopter to move away so that we could take off, because all the fixed-wing uh, aircraft were low on, very low on fuel. Helicopters had just been refueled. So they had, the helicopter had to lift off to reposition. When it lift off, it got vertigo, this dust blew up, it browned out, and misjudged and crashed into us. So the next, you know, there's fire up in the cockpit. Open up the left rear paratrooper door to get out, but that's the side that it crashed into. There's nothing but fire there. Open up the right rear, and there was flames, but there are times there weren't flames. So we just started jumping out, and uh, you could hear this, the small arms start to, that we had were starting to cook off. Uh, I was near the front of the aircraft. I didn't. I really did not believe that I would make the door. Uh, I said, oh, you know, you know, oh God, is this it? Is this how it's going to end? Because I thought at any moment it would be over with. And I was surprised when I got to the door and I jumped out, hit the ground, hit landed on some hot metal, rolled, got to my feet, and I could hear hand grenades exploding inside the aircraft. And then we also had six red-eye missiles inside the aircraft, and they started shooting off and going out, flying out into the desert. Um, it was an inferno, just a lot of explosion and all that fuel burning. And uh, so I ran to one of the other aircraft nearby, but they were all moving. They were all scrambling to get away from this inferno. And uh, so eventually I got on another EC-130 
And the, the pilot of the helicopter that crashed into us was on the ramp of the aircraft. Somebody had helped him. So what had happened is the pilot and co-pilot of the helicopter actually escaped through their, their cockpit windows. They were badly burned. They had up to third-degree burns. The t three Marine crewmen that were in the back of the aircraft, they died in the back. And then five uh, airmen uh, that were up in the cockpit died. Um, and we had several people that were also burned. Uh, so I had, I had EMT training and, you, and in Delta you have also advanced medical training. So I started providing medical aid to the pilot. Uh, he had inhaled the hot gases, so he had a hard time breathing. He had his mic cord around his neck that was burned into his neck, so I cut that free. And so then we, we left, um, and we were low on fuel. When we left, uh, our aircraft hit the berm on the side of the road and uh, we flew up into the air came down and then we then finally we took off so the they announced over the intercom that uh, our landing gear might have been damaged and we might not have any good landing gear when we get back and uh, so then a little while later they come over and said that we might not have enough fuel to make it back we might have to ditch at sea. So anyway, we did make it back to uh, Marceria Island in Oman. And that's where we took off from. And uh, it was so I, I kept stayed with we gave the with the pilot. We gave him his name was Schaefer, we gave him morphine. Uh, we did the best we could. Um, lesson learned. Uh, we should have had on each aircraft a, an extensive medical package. So we didn't even have IVs to give these people. Um, so that was the recommendation. Would we do anything like that in the future? You know, we're trained to do the give IVs. We're to do that. Uh, we we just didn't have anything. But luckily, everybody made it that was on the aircrafts back. And it was only after we got back and we did a, started doing a head count of who was here and who was not here did we know that uh, eight people were missing who were burned up in the during the accident. Um, that mission stuck, you know, sticks out in my mind. I do know that if we got to the embassy, the American embassy in Tehran, we would have actually been able to be successful uh it the, always the problem was getting to to tehran and getting back from tehran because um, we trained over and over for the actions at the objective to rescue the hostages um so maybe i was a little bit long-winded on this one but this this one sticks out um thank you for sharing that um i being in the Air Force myself in uh, 1979, I was stationed at Eglin next to Hurlburt. I uh, retired out uh -huh. of Hurlburt Field Special Operations. I, I served with some of the survivors that, that were on that mission. 
And uh, one of the things I believe that did come out of that from my limited uh, perspective and, and what, I, what I read on it was that uh, I think communications were also a problem between the services at the time, and I think there were major changes made. And I know that special operations on the Air Force side was also increased. Um, I think uh, having to do that operation again today uh, I believe what you said, if we would have been able to get to the embassy, we would have got them out. And I think, uh, I think pulling off something like that today is probably chances are much more successful since the services are much more, uh, working together and on the same, you know, frequency, so to speak. Uh, so, um, even though that was tragedy and a very low point, I remember, um, I think that what came out of that was, was great lessons learned and, um, we're much better off today for it. Yeah, what came out of that mission, and you said communications was a problem, uh, we could not communicate to the helicopters to warn the helicopters about the haboos and that they should they should not stay close, fly close to the ground. They should fly, get up and fly, try to fly above the haboo, the sandstorm. Um, we were trying to avoid radar, but the sandstorm blocks radar. So if you fly above it, you would be, you don't have to fly in it, you can fly above it. Um, that was the early, you know, the SATCOMs were just coming out. They had a SATCOM radio on the helicopters, but back then you, you had to actually, they would have had to land on the ground, set the SATCOM radio up, set the antenna up, get the right azimuth and angle and then use the SATCOM radio. Otherwise, we had no, sec that was our only secure comms was the SATCOM radio. So we, and we were on radio silence. So, you know, they had the, we had the investigation, um, the long commission, and uh, we just, no, it was the Halloway commission on this one. And uh, the Halloway commission set up, said we needed to form an organization to put all this together. So JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, was formed. Then in 1983, we had Grenada, and there was problems in Grenada, that different interoperability command problems. So the result of Grenada, U.S. Special Operations Command was formed out of Grenada. So we, you know, we learn after all these operations one of the biggest problems with the Operation Eagle Claw at, was that at post-Vietnam, uh, funding was cut, defense funding was cut, special operations were cut. It seemed in the past that when wars were over, the first uh, units that get cut funding and, de and then disestablished our special operations. So... We, these RH-53D helicopters were the only helicopters that we had in the inventory that had the lift and distance, even with an internal extra fuel tank. Um, so, you know, we were really handicapped. And um, and I do blame, you know, it's just because that's the thing. Vietnam was over. Next thing you know, budgets are cut. Funding is cut. You know, it just so that's what kind of happened. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you for sharing that piece of history with us. And um, 
I'm going to lead into a question that's a little a little bit on the lighter side, <laughs> which is, you know, throughout your military service, I'm, I'm sure there were some funny things uh, that have happened along the way. And uh, is there something that stands out to you that makes you laugh and smile every time you tell the story? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I was trying to think. We had a lot, you know, we we play a lot of different jokes uh, and do different things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, one of the jokes that they played on a team sergeant that was still pretty funny because of our cavalier that we wear our body armor. Uh, we had some sheets of lead and, and of course we had the cavalier helmet. So this guy, his, his team members that were starting to were unbeknownst to him were slipping these lead sheets into his cavalier <laughs> and into his helmet. And over time, they gradually would increase the amount of lead that they were putting in there. And, um, and then, and at one time he, actually went down and lifted up somebody else's cavalier and looked like what in the world uh, there's a difference in my cavalier and this person's cavalier and you know we do stuff like that well mike we learned that you actually started mountain climbing at the age of 16 way Uh, before you joined the army (laughs) mm -hmm. but what drew you to this outdoor sport or this outdoor activity (laughs) (laughs) um I read a book called Annapurna by Maurice Herzog, uh, and uh, that that, they, that was the first ascent of an 8,000-meter peak in the Himalayas. And of course, Maurice lost a lot of his fingers and uh, toes in climbing Annapurna, but that book uh, just said, I want to know more. And so we were going... Uh, doing the family vacation in Wyoming, going out to the Tetons and uh, Yellowstone. And my mother was the one that actually found a mountain climbing school out in the Tetons and uh, knew that I would be interested. So we went out there and I entered the the mountaineering course that, that Exxon Mountaineering Guides offered. And while my parents continued on to Yellowstone, I that's where I first learned to rock climb and to do mountain climbing. And that became, I, I just liked it. And so I started from there uh, doing a lot of rock climbing, mostly at that time. Um, when I was at Fort Leonard Wood uh, in 73 to 78, we have a lot of caves. At that time, Missouri had more known caves than any other state in the United States. Uh, and Pulaski County, where Fort Leonard was in, had the third most caves in the in the state. And so eventually, I went to the rock climbing school and, and was it's the um, at at Rolla. It's the Missouri School of Mines. So I joined a rock climbing club and their spelunking club. Eventually, I became a member of the Missouri Speleological Survey and the National Speleological Survey. And then I was in charge of all organized caving in Pulaski County. So I was caving all the time. I, and uh, so I took, I did some rock climbing near Fort Leonard Wood, but mostly I did caving during that time. And then when I got into Delta, 
one of the things that we needed to know is how to climb, whether it be rocks or buildings. So I started teaching in Delta uh, climbing. And so I was the climbing. One of my additional duties was teaching climbing and uh, guiding rock climbing and mountaineering trips in Delta. So um, even went to Poland and worked uh, with the Polish, some of the Polish army and did some caving in Poland. Um, so we tried, to, we did all that different stuff. So uh, that was how I relaxed. That was rock climbing and mountain climbing. And we would take, we would, sometimes in Delta, a group of us would take our leave and we would just go out to say Rocky Mountain National Park on leave and, and climb at Rocky Mountain National Park. And uh, so every, about every weekend, I was probably gone climbing. A lot of different places to climb in North Carolina, West Virginia, Virginia. And uh, so that's how I, that's what I did for enjoyment, to relax. Uh, Mike, you've also climbed quite a bit of mountains. I mean, in, in your travels, you've, you've summited many mountains. One of them was Mount Denali in Alaska. Uh, which is uh, twenty over twenty thousand feet, and uh, you've been up there more than once, correct? Yes, I've climbed Denali twice. Uh, the first time I climbed Denali was in nineteen ninety. Uh, the The British two two SAS had their mountain teams, and we had mountain teams in Delta. I was on the mountain team, and um, they, the, so they were climbing, going to climb Den Denali in 1990, and uh, they invited uh, if two of us from from Delta would want to join them. And I tried to get a second per person to join me, but I couldn't, I couldn't get nobody to join me. So I, I I linked up with the Brits, and it was so it's nine Brits and myself. Um, I met them first time in Anchorage. And uh, and then we climbed the mountain. It took us um, 15 days to get to the summit. All of us, all 10 of us made it to the summit at the same time and then three days to get down. So I was paired up with a, with a guy named Taff O'Malley. And uh, we did this on skis. Uh, normally, when you climb Denali on skis, you you don't really take the skis a much further than eleven thousand feet, but we we took the skis all the way up to fourteen thousand two hundred feet. There's been people that have skied off the mountain, but that's that that's only few and far between. Uh, so it was really great working with the two two SAS, and so that was the first time I climbed it. Second time I climbed it. Um, I read an outside magazine that uh, they were there was a they were trying to there was an article about a group of people with different disabilities doing the highest points in all 50 states and uh, so they were putting this group together with all kinds of different disabilities and uh, so I wrote to the organizer and said that I thought this was a great thing to do, then I would be interested in supporting it any way I could. Gave him a copy of my resume. I, I was a professional member of the American Mountain Guides Association. 
And um, so that didn't happen. They didn't get the funding that they wanted. But one of the guys that was in that group was Todd Houston. And he still wanted to do that. He wanted to climb all 50 state high points and he wanted to break the record of doing it the fastest time. So he saw my resume, contacted me, asked me if I would guide him up the mountain. And so I said I would. And uh, I took leave to do that. Adrian Crane, he contacted Adrian Crane. Adrian Crane's an amazing person, does all these long distance uh, races and everything. And he was the record holder for doing the 50 state high points the fastest. So it was myself and Adrian, and he had another guy named Whit Rombach that went along to support him. So um, we went up to Denali. So I guided him up. Uh, I was the technical. Adrian was the expedition leader. I was the technical leader on what we would do, when we would do it, and everything. So we climbed a mountain in 12 days, which is a fast time and three days to get down. So on June 1st, we got him to the top of the mountain of 1994. And then he um, then he started, that's when the clock started, and he did the lower 48 mountains. Also pivoting, you come from a long line of family members that have served this country through throughout our, our existence, uh, going as far back to Revolutionary War, War of 1812, uh, all the way up to present day. As we prepare to honor Veterans Day, which is coming up on November the 11th, can you share your personal thoughts on what this day means to you and what do you do to honor veterans, both past and present? Yeah, Veterans Day was originally Armist Day. It was November 11th, 1918, when uh, the the Germans signed the Armist Treaty uh, and ended World War I. Uh, that was our first world war. That was a war to end all wars. So we celebrate veterans on Armist Day. Uh, today we call it Veterans Day. So we, we, we honor those veterans who have served some have played the ultimate sacrifice with their lives, but we honor also the veterans that have served in the past and are serving today. And I think also we need to also honor the families of veterans because they sacrifice the same. And uh, so that's what Veterans Day is all about. We know it wasn't the war that ended all wars the surrender treaty in uh, for germany during world war ii wasn't signed until 28 june 1919 um but we we use armistice day the day that the guns went silent to honor veterans and uh i tried to do that you know not just on one day but all 365 days uh, of the year. And uh, I spent a lot of time honoring and remembering and veterans. Um, you know, I've looked into 
the circumstances behind all the names on the EOD memorial. And of course, we have a memorial at Delta for our fallen in Delta. Um, so, you know, is what's behind that name? There's a lot more behind that name. What happened on that day that they died? Um, and also their families, you know, uh, I get, uh, so I'm researching all the names on the memorial. I also do postings on find a grave and, uh, I get contacted by families, uh, just, just recently I was contacted by the family, a cousin actually of a Marine that's on the memorial who was killed in 1990, what is she, 1991. And the cousin contacted me. She, she had seen my posting on find the grave and she, she wanted to know if I knew her cousin, uh, which I did not. And I, I had actually very little information about what happened to the, the Marine that's on the memorial. But uh, I contacted uh, some people, some Marines that I knew who actually served with this with him. There's two, two Marines that served with him, then contacted her. They wanted to know stories, you know, about, about him and his service. And uh, so, you know, people are... So I get contacted all the time. And, and like, for example, we had a um, aircraft that went down in New Guinea in, um, let's see, what, what year was that? Try to think of it, it was 44. Um, we had two, we had a Navy officer and an enlisted on that aircraft that went down. And uh, there was a, uh, a bunch of Australians on that aircraft, and the, the what the Navy, the Navy uh, officer and NCO bomb one was bomb disposal, one was mine disposal. They were going to go to a conference for the planning for the invasion of the retaking re the Philippines. So that's why they were on the plane. And but there was a like I said, there was several Australians also on that plane. So. The plane went down, and and um, first of all, the Navy never knew what what happened to the officer and the enlisted person. Um, they just kind of went missing. Uh, they were not; their names were not on the the typewritten manifest for the aircraft. They were actually later. The Navy found a updated manifest with their names were handwritten in on the manifest. And, uh, so a year, about a year later, their status from MIA was, ch was changed that they were presumed killed when the aircraft went down. The aircraft was never found. They did spent several days searching for the aircraft. It's so all the occupants on the aircraft are, are to this day are still missing it somewhere in New Guinea. But what I did in Find a Grave, I got the list, I got the missing aircraft crew report, had a list of all the names on board the aircraft, the Australian names. And um, so I posted a little bit of something on each name on Find a Grave. 
And uh, and so eventually, those two office that officer and NCO, we eventually had their names now on the EOD memorial. So that's that to me gives me that's what I tried to do is to make sure we're not missing anyone that deserves to be on the memorial. I get I hear from different families, some of them EOD, some of them not EOD, and uh, I can share with them what I know, and then they likewise share with me what they know about their loss of their loved one. So um, I try to make Veterans Day an everyday day. Well, I think you have, you know, such a significant impact on on our EOD community in that way, and just um, your involvement with Find a Grave and giving some closure to families and through your research, Mike, is so, so important. And, you know, we thank you for that. It's, um, it's very, very special. And um, as, as folks uh, transition from, you know, civilian to military life, or I'm sorry, as folks transition from military to civilian life, I know that you've shared with Mike and I before that the way that you uh, you stay connected and you continue to serve really, really is a passion of yours and, and you continue to do research and, and all of those sorts of things to stay busy and involved. So if you had any, you know, piece of advice to those who are transitioning from military to civilian life, what what would that be? Uh, yeah. I would like, you know, I think it's really helpful to still, even though you're transitioning from the military to civilian life, uh, I think it's still, the military is still part of you. I think it's important to stay in some way connected to the military. There are different organizations that I think... uh, that it's powerful to belong to, whether it be for EOD folks, it would whether it be the Navy EOD Association, become a member of that, uh, the Air Force Master Blaster Association. Uh, we have the National EOD Association, which I'm a member of. We have a Vietnam chapter of the National EOD Association. Um, it would be great to have different chapters such as a desert storm chapter for veterans that EOD veterans that served in desert storm be great to have a global war 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 on terrorism chapter or Iraq Afghan chapter Um, most of our so most of our members are Vietnam veterans in the National EOD Association were in our late 60s, early in the 70s and 80s. We have a few young people, but as an organization right now, we are aging now. You have other organizations like the American Legion, the the Disabled Veterans Association, the uh, Veterans of Foreign War Association, I think being a member of a military organization after you get out, you have a lot more fellowship 
with those who served. You know, a lot of times people feel that people that haven't been in the military, you just, you can't communicate what your experiences were with somebody who has never shared the same experience. But by being belonging to military organizations, you have people there that have shared the different, it might be a different time period, but you know, it's um, walking down on a IED today or walking, you know, doing disarming what we call booby traps back in our time, pre-IED time, pre-IED. Um, you still know the feeling of, of doing that. Um, and um, so I know that there's people that getting out of the military and people that are in the military that are are struggling. The, um, you know, the suicide rate seems to be escalating. Um, but there, if by being joined to a, a different organization, maybe it would help that you could connect with somebody and talk out what your problems are and your problems aren't unique to you uh other people have gone through issues and problems too you know to adjust to civilian life um but i think it's important that you still stay connected to your military family that helps me anyway mike thanks for sharing that and uh I, I agree with you, and I also understand, too, that sometimes when you get out of the military, you want to get away from it, you need some time away from it, and then maybe with some time or, or, or reflection on it, something may spark you to, to come back, to be a part of the community again, and to find a place to serve. Uh, I think the great thing about today, as it currently stands with military organizations, is that there is so much that you can do. Uh, you can support mm-hmm. the active duty troops today. You can support the veterans. You can support the families. You can support nonprofits that are that are helping veterans and helping families and helping active duty. There's so many things you can do. It's uh, not like the old days of where, say, for instance, I know many people uh, may think that if I join one of these organizations, uh, you know, it's sitting around the bar and sharing war stories, and that's just <laughs> a little part of it, right? I mean, that's important. It's been fun, but you don't have to do that. Uh, my uh, my uncle passed away, and uh, I, he was buried in a small town, and the American Legion came out to do the uh, honor guard ceremonies. I was so moved by what they did. Uh, they were also very old. Uh, they were, I think the youngest was in their 50s. The oldest was, I think, in his early 70s. But the, uh, the honors that they rendered uh, to my uncle, who was a Vietnam veteran, absolutely moved me, and it's just something on my mind that I'd like to do going forward. Uh, because I know the honor guards in the military, they cannot cover all of the uh, veteran and retiree deaths. It's it's too much. Um, so having having these organizations that do that is is so critical. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you most of all for being on this podcast. We have absolutely enjoyed it having you on. Um, you are living history. Uh, I say that respectfully, <laughs> and also the great work that you do and the impact that you've made. Uh, it, we truly enjoyed listening listening to you, and and thank you for all that you have done and all that you continue to do. So I want to do one more thing with you before we go, and that is uh, we always want to have a little bit of fun before we end the podcast. 
and ask you some questions. So this is the lightning round. Right. What What is the uh, favorite uh, or interesting wild animal that you've encountered on your travels, mountain climbing, visiting, etc.? Well, recently, a couple of years ago, we got to go to Komodo Island and see the Komodo dragons. Now, we've we've been out with polar bears, brown bear, grizzly bear, a uh, lot of different animals and stuff like that. But I tell you, nothing is more impressive than being out there in the wild with a Komodo dragon. And you got a guide with you. He has a little stick that's kind of forked at the end to keep the Komodo dragon away. So I would say the trip that was to me, seeing those Komodo dragons in the wild. Now, and the little ones are tree climbers. The little Komodo dragons are up in the trees climbing around. And uh, because the big Komodo dragons will eat the little ones. So that's why they're hanging out in the trees. But uh, I tell you, they just, they are very impressive. Yeah, and they like to eat people, don't they? Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I want to look at those things from afar, maybe in a yeah, cage. Yeah, of course, they have all, in their saliva, they have all the different bacteria. Yeah. And then just recently, with a few years ago, they actually discovered they have venom glands, too. They did not know that. So they're also venomous. Well, who is your favorite comedian? Well, I like... Jim Gaffigan. I first uh, saw Jim Gaffigan when he had a TV show. Then I've seen some of his comedy specials. I like his type of comedy. You know, I like the comedy like people like Seinfeld. And then, then the, of course, the older ones to me were Red Skeleton. I used to watch all of his shows, Lucille Ball. But uh, I said, I, I like Jim Gaffigan. Yeah. Yeah. He's awesome. Mike, Cherry, I'd like to close and really thank the EOD Warrior Foundation and all the men and women that work and support the EOD Warrior Foundation and all the great work that you guys do for for the EOD community. So I just want to thank you for all that you guys do for us. Well, thank you for that, Mike. That's very, very kind, and it's an honor for us to be here and and do the work that we do. Yeah, thank you, Mike, on uh, behalf of everybody who works at the foundation and leads the foundation and serves on the foundation. Um, Thank you very much for that. Yeah, and, you know, we we so appreciate your time today, Mike, on this interview, and you are certainly a treasure, sir. And um, thank you. We we really appreciate it and hope you have a, a wonderful day. Okay, thanks, Sherry. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend.